Section 3 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies an authentic record of remarkable cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh. Pretended Death, Part 3 False Personation of Applicant False impersonation in making application for insurance and in undergoing the requisite medical examination is a dangerous form of fraud. Here, both agent and examiner may be innocent victims of deception. On the other hand, both may be in rascally collusion with other parties to defraud the agent's company, or again, the agent may conspire with others to deceive the examiner. Mr. Francis, in his Annals, gives an account of the earliest known instance of such deception. Application was made in the year 1780 to a London office to insure the life of a lady for £2,000. Her health was sound, constitution excellent, references satisfactory, and the policy was issued. Within six months, a claim was made for the money. In the proofs of loss, which were found to be regular, the disease was certified to be pulmonary consumption. Thereupon, directors looked grave and questioned the secretary, and the secretary looked rueful and questioned the doctor. There was no accounting for such a termination of the risk. It seemed unregulated. No fraud could be alleged, and the policy was paid. Information subsequently given to the office, however, led to inquiry, and it was ascertained that one sister being an incurable invalid, the other personated her at the assurance office, deceived the medical examiner, sent in the certificate of her sister's death, and obtained the money. Thereafter she disappeared, and no thought of restitution was entertained. To lessen the risk of this vicarious portraiture, this impersonation mutato nomine, the companies lay more stress than formerly upon means of comparison and identification, exactitude in height, weight, chest measure, complexion, color of eyes and hair, and personal peculiarities. Moreover, they employ the checks and guards of systematic inspection and the machinery of detective agencies. Even when these instrumentalities are at fault, the gamesters frequently defeat themselves in one way or another. In a case reported from Montreal, for example, certain creditors of a consumptive 
named La Ferriere were anxious to reimburse themselves in advance of his prospective death. A healthy substitute was provided for examination and policies were issued by three life companies to the amount of $20,000. These policies were assigned to the creditors. Within a month after the payment of the first premium, the invalid died a little too hurriedly for the success of the game of the conspirators. The proofs of loss revealed the nature of the fraud and the companies concerned naturally and properly refused to be victimized. On the other hand, in a case reported from Boston in April 1891, the rascals succeeded in swindling the New York life out of $2,000. The particulars, as published, showed that the policy had been issued two years before to a citizen of Boston, and at his death the money was paid to his widow. It was discovered that the man himself did not make application for the policy, being a consumptive, and that another, named John J. King, personated him at the medical examination and other preliminaries to the issuance of the policy. King, it is alleged, acted throughout in conspiracy with the wife of the consumptive and received half of the amount of the policy from her. When the fraud was discovered, a warrant was issued for the arrest of King, who was traced to the house of his brother in Brooklyn, where he was captured. Among the Molly Maguires The case of Catherine White against the United Brethren Mutual Aid Society tried before Judge Handley in Scranton, Pennsylvania in 1879 brought out the facts in an attempt to falsely personate an applicant. In 1878, Patrick Waldron of Scranton was the agent in that city for the UB Mutual Aid. On the 16th of August, 1878, he forwarded an application for a $3,000 membership on one Mary White of Scranton in favor of her sister, Catherine White. Dr. Horace Ladd was the examining physician for the society at Scranton, and his certificate showed the applicant to be a woman in excellent health and a first-class risk. The society issued its certificate of membership on the application for benefit to the amount of $3,000 in favor of Catherine White, sister of Mary White, and late in November, notice was received that Mary White had died on the 22nd of November, 1878, of pneumonia. About the same time a letter was received from Andrew White, the husband of Mary White, giving warning that the transaction was fraudulent, that neither he nor his wife had known anything about it. 
that his wife was taken sick in April 1878, had severe hemorrhages of the lungs in June 1878, and died of consumption. The society investigated the case, found the facts exactly as stated by Andrew White, and thereupon refused to pay the claim and dismissed the agent. Catherine White brought suit to recover the $3,000. At the trial, Dr. Horace Ladd swore that he did not know Mary White nor her sister, Catherine White, personally, that the woman whom he examined as Mary White was at the time, August 15, 1878, a stout, healthy, robust woman weighing not less than 146 pounds, and that when asked to sign the application, she stated that she could not write her name, but made her mark. Dr. Connell swore that as early as June 1878, he was called to attend Mary White professionally, that she, during that month, had frequent hemorrhages of the lungs, that he visited her at least eight different times prior to August 1878, that she was very much emaciated and would not have weighed over 100 pounds, and that he prescribed the remedies usually administered in pulmonary consumption. Andrew White swore that his wife, Mary White, was taken ill in April 1878, that in June 1878 she became dangerously ill, had hemorrhages of the lungs and a severe cough, that they called in Dr. Connell, that she was then already very much reduced in flesh and would not have weighed over 100 pounds, that his wife could readily write her name and never signed by making her mark, and that neither he nor his wife knew anything of the insurance on her life. Three of the neighbors swore that in June 1878, there were several times called into Mr. White's house on account of her bleeding at the lungs, that they hourly expected her death and that she was so reduced that she would not have weighed over 100 pounds. For the prosecution, Patrick Waldron, said to be a Molly McGuire, swore that the Mary White who died, wife of Andrew White, was the identical woman whom he took to Dr. Ladd's office and had examined. A police officer of Scranton said, to be a Molly McGuire, swore that he saw Patrick Waldron and Mary White, the identical woman who died, go into Dr. Ladd's office that day and that he talked with them on their way. Another Irishman, said also to be a Molly McGuire, swore to the same thing. Dr. Haggerty, a Molly McGuire, the attending physician, swore that Mary White died of pneumonia and not of consumption. After this exhibition of Molly Maguireism, 
there was no resource except to carry the case to a higher court beyond the baleful infection of an atmosphere of perjury. The Personality of a Yellow Dog About the time that the Belfast conspirators were palming off on the English managers of an American life insurance company, an uninsurable Negro for an insurable Irishman, as narrated elsewhere in this volume, a gang of gamesters in South Carolina had a yellow dog insured under the name Jim Brown, presumably a gentleman of the colored persuasion. The gang implicated in this comedy, as well as in other fraudulent transactions, numbered 19 persons, black and white. For a considerable period, their operations crudely conducted as they were, resulted successfully, the total sums out of which the companies had been swindled amounting to over $100,000. The leading sinners were a family of whites named Bond. Their plan was to ensure the life of a fictitious person, then to hire lodging rooms, place an alleged wife in possession and announce to the neighborhood that her husband was dying. The announcement was followed by the news of his death. Bodies were smuggled from the potter's field, secretly conveyed into the premises, and in due time buried in the cemeteries. Then the insurance money would be collected. One of the bonds was a physician, another was an agent of the insurance companies, and the third acted as buyer of the corpses. The conspiracy was finally unearthed by Pinkerton detectives sent to the scene of action by the Travelers Insurance Company of Hartford and the United States Mutual Accident Company of New York. Many of the rascals fled from the state and escaped. The case which led to discovery was that of a colored person named Joseph B. Dudley, who was insured in two accident companies in the sum of $5,000 each. In the process of investigation, a confession was obtained from trustworthy parties that no such person as Dudley ever lived, and that the corpse, alleged to be that of the fictitious Dudley, was obtained in a graveyard for colored people. Among the discoveries made by the detectives was that concerning Jim Brown. This party on whose life the amount of a policy held by the Bonds and their agents prominently the colored woman Mary Dudley, was paid at maturity, turns out to have been a yellow dog. It was learned that one and the same Negro corpse was, with noteworthy economy, utilized five times in making up proofs of loss in as many different cases of alleged death. If anyone up to this period 
thought that the limit of diabolical ingenuity had been reached. He must have been surprised to learn from the bonds that the harp strings were capable of being attuned to new melodies. They showed that even the element of facetiousness may be successfully introduced in the game. They demonstrated that for practical purposes a yellow dog may personate a man, that he may be insured as a man, that his human owners may have an insurable interest in his life, and that when the dog dies, as die he must and will under such circumstances, the beneficiaries may present a valid claim which the insurance companies will duly recognize and pay, all of which is, in one sense, extremely funny. But these fun-loving adventurers extended the range of their profitable amusement. They concluded that it was troublesome to obtain a disinterred corpse. It was only fair that the one they procured should reimburse them by serving five times over in the way of substitution for the individuals, or rather the dummies, that had been insured for their benefit. The funny part for them and the serious feature for the companies was that the claims thus set up were paid without question or investigation. But the comedy came to an untimely end. One of Pinkerton's sternest detectives, Gustav Frank, appeared on the scene of action and rang the curtain down. A German-American wife murderer. In October 1892, Hugo Waller, a German, 30 years of age, and his wife removed from Indianapolis to Toledo, Ohio. In the following March, the police were after him on the charge of poisoning Mrs. Waller, the motive being collection of an insurance amounting to $5,000. It appears that Mary Niece, a domestic, 26 years of age, was engaged to do housework for them, and that a short time afterward, Mrs. Waller proposed a trip to Chicago via Detroit and persuaded Miss Niece to accompany her. At Detroit, the two women visited the office of the Equitable Life, and Mrs. Waller persuaded her companion to have her life insured for $5,000. She also induced the girl to pass herself off as Mrs. Hugo Waller, and the policy was made out in that way. Shortly after, the family moved to South Bend, Indiana, and Miss Niece went with them. Suddenly, Miss Niece became ill and complained of nausea with painful swelling of her face. She suspected that she was being systematically poisoned and, becoming frightened, left the house and went to Chicago. Baller and his wife returned to Toledo in February. Here, Mrs. Baller was taken sick, the symptoms being the same as those suffered by the girl. 
On the night of February 20th, Mrs. Voller died. Mr. Voller notified the insurance officials at Detroit of his wife's death, enclosed a copy of the death certificate, and demanded the $5,000 insurance due on the death of his wife. Insurance agents went to Toledo and investigated the matter. They examined the corpse at the cemetery vault and were astonished at the discovery made. It was not that of the woman that was insured in the name of Mrs. Voller, and an autopsy of the body disclosed the presence of strychnine in the stomach. Voller suddenly left town and made his escape. End of Section 3